You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. So when I ran through this yesterday, I was pushing about 45 minutes, so buckle up. It's going to be a long one. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. I actually turned it down. Uh, 42 minutes. Uh, If you're anything like me, you can understand just how much I hate running. Um, Not just like to play games, right? Playing games and running, that's just perfectly fine. But like running for exercise, I just can't stand it. When I was actually younger, I would try to run about 15 miles each week. And the only reason I really did that was because I hate shopping for new clothes more than I hate running. And so I often joke that I was just running from from new pants. Um, So I don't really have any good stories about running other than maybe startling some people at 5.30 in the morning or catching a few glimpses of some wildlife. But there is quite an amazing story about running that we're going to talk about today. So we're going to spend maybe 25 minutes or so, plus minus, uh, going through Jonah. And we're going to go through the whole book. And we actually have a lot to cover. So we're just going to jump right in. But first, let me just set some context before we get into you know, this great fish story. So Jonah was a Galilean prophet, right? He was a prophet to Jeroboam II, who reigned over the 10 northern tribes. Remember, we got the northern tribe, we got the southern tribes. Uh, from 17, or not 17, holy cow, uh, 786 to 746, before the enslavement and the dispersion, right, of the northern tribes uh, at the hands of the Assyrians. So Jonah, he was successfully counseled Jeroboam II uh, during some of the Assyrian invasions that were going on. He was from this town called Gath-Hefar in Zebulun, which is about 15 miles from Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee. So if you got your Bible, if you got your electronic device, please join me in reading through this. Uh, we're going to be starting in Jonah chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amitti. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went on board and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So, Jonah actually means dove. And if you remember back in Genesis, the dove that Noah sent out from the ark returned with a branch of, of an olive tree, an enduring symbol of peace and compassion. Thus, we could maybe think that the dove was symbolically implying God's attempt to rescue Nineveh from the destruction and judgment through forgiveness and mercy. The dove, Jonah, of peace will be his agent. Jonah's command is to preach in Nineveh, a great city, as well as a wicked one. In fact, the phrase great city occurs three other times in the book. The implication is that such a great, important, magnificent, and large city, albeit wicked, is worth God's trouble to save. Jonah, however, chooses to flee in the opposite direction. The first words of the phrase, Jonah ran away, uh, in in 1-2, go, essentially, echoes each other in Hebrew, rise and go, to which Jonah rose and fled. The original language more sharply contrasts what God asked Jonah to do with what he does immediately. Jonah knows that this call from God will not simply go away. His immediate grasps, he immediately grasps the radical and pressing nature of the call. 
and thinks that only radical and immediate action will save him from God's call on his life. The reasons for Jonah's running are not explained until chapter 4. It cannot be understood without historical background. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was Israel's worst enemy and the bane of the ancient world. They were a powerful, well-developed civilization known for their brutality and their grisly treatment of their enemies. Jonah's response to God's directive can be understood as fear, as rebellion, maybe even some moral opposition to God's mercy. Jonah's not interested in participating in the redemption of this particular enemy. It is, of course, impossible for us to run from, away from God. The expression in, uh, in verse 3 means away from the presence of the Lord, an expression used twice in this verse to add emphasis. It is a common experience for us of, of faith to physically try to leave a place that reminds us of God, that reminds us of God's call sometimes so that we can avoid the message, avoid the change uh, that, that we have heard in that particular place. So why did Jonah run? Jonah's running was a refusal to obey God's call to go to Nineveh, but it's more than simple disobedience. His running demonstrates his basic disagreement with God's way of dealing with people in the world. Jonah runs because he does not want to go to Nineveh and preach God's word, uh, preach God's message of repentance. Jonah ran from his call in protest against God's move toward the violently wicked. He wants God to be consistent, to destroy those who are violent and wicked and and horrible, and to help the, the righteous to prosper. He believes God is being inconsistent and dangerous in this theology, moving by offering to forgive the Ninevites. God's action to save the wicked redefines what God means to Jonah. It's a, new, it's a new move to the covenant and a rehabilitation and of habitual and flagrant perpetual uh, wrongdoings of heinous crimes. To Jonah, God is taking an unbelievable risk in sparing the Ninevites, a risk that is bad for the victims of the world and for God's reputation as a whole. He wants nothing to do with God's current strategy. Go to Nineveh declares a primary theme and a timeless call in the book of Jonah, Go, or God's call to Jonah to go establishes an enduring relationship or a revelation and is a problem for all believers, including us. God wants his prophet to go to those that are our enemies with a message of repentance and forgiveness. The Old Testament has another narrative that suggests something very similar. In 2 Kings chapter 5, the commander of the, of the oppressing Syrian army brought, a troop in, brought troops into Israel seeking healing from Elisha. God led the prophet to heal him and sent him home in peace. Again, in, in 2 Kings, uh, he, did not, he did this in spite of the fact that Syria had routinely raided Israel for loot and slaves. Elisha demonstrated compassion toward the Syrian enemies whom he healed, fed, and released when they were in his power. This theme of compassion comes to full blossom in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus crosses all of the social boundaries, reaching out to the violent outcasts with the, demon, with the demonically possessed in the graveyard, a zealot in Simon Zelotos, Roman, uh, Roman centurions, and even the thief on the cross. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the early church was plainly extended to outsiders, Cornelius and the Ethiopian. Jesus calls the disciples to love their enemies and pray, to the, pray for those who persecute them. Jonah, remember, meaning dove, 
His name represents God's mission of peace to all people of the world, even God's chosen people's enemies. Jonah begins to protest by running away from God's call. His faith in God, however, is a real-life example and source of hope for us believers. His honest faith, in spite of failing trust of his calling, may serve as encouragement to us all. All of us with difficult work struggle with trust, struggle with trust in God, including the Apostle Paul. While a storm rages, Jonah declares his faith boldly, calmly confesses his guilt, and offers himself as a means of deliverance from the storm. This example of his renewal of faith and trust in God is an example for all who would welcome God's mercy in the midst of trouble, even when we ourselves are the cause of the trouble. To put it in some personal terms, ask yourself, what is your Nineveh? What is something that God is calling you to do that you are refusing or unwilling to even hear? So here we have running from God in the first chapter. In the second chapter, running to God. So let's start in in verse 1 of chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surround me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank. The earth beneath barred me forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought me up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah 2 is a psalm of thanks from within the belly of a fish. The song primarily recounts Jonah's distress in the waters and gives thanks for his rescue. It begins with a summary of his cry for help and continues for four more stanzas, describing Jonah's sinking in the water before he is swallowed by a fish. In the refrain, Jonah summarizes his cry for rescue and declares God as the true source of salvation. The amazing context of this poetic prayer is Jonah's gratitude while inside the fish. He fully expected to die in the waters. His thanksgiving within the belly is a proclamation of joy with the realization that God has delivered him in spite of his running. Though he is not yet on dry land, his faith reaches a new dimension of understanding. He seems to have no doubt that as he was delivered from drowning, he will eventually be delivered uh, delivered safely to shore. Faith in Yahweh is never as simple as pure obedience versus pure rebellion. Jonah helps us to see the complexity of faith. He returns to his piety and worship of of the true God of of heaven, sea, and dry land. At the same time, he maintains his reservations of protest against God's intended way in the world with the violent Ninevites. In the end, Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving is a witness of hope to us believers. This hope has integrity and richness when, he thanks, uh, when his thanks are seen in light of his situation. 
He gives thanks in spite of the uncertainty of still being at sea. He gives thanks knowing he did not, did not deserve rescue. He gives thanks for a haven in an unlikely spa, uh, place. He gives thanks in spite of deep discomfort. Jonah gives thanks in spite of his unresolved questions and issues. He is a real and hopeful faith. Jonah, like all believers called, Yahweh, called by Yahweh, must be reborn by grace. This is what running to God looks like. God delivers us even when we resist. So we've already run from God. We just ran back to God. And now in chapter 3, running with God. Let's read. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord, and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the kings and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The prophet Jonah receives a second chance to participate in God's mission to reconcile his enemies. In the first chapter, Jonah rose to run away, but here Jonah has been reconciled to God's call. The mission to Nineveh can begin again because God has called again. The context of Jonah's prophecy will not be given to him until he is actually in the city. Remember it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah knows it will be a message against its wickedness. God's faithfulness longs for his people to return to him even when they are wicked. He is free to judge sin according to his righteousness or to forgive according to his compassion. God's change of heart stands in contrast to Jonah's consistent desire to see justice done and the wickedness punished. This inclination is common to humans, uh, to, especially to our experience, especially when the enemy has perpetuated terror, has done some heinous things on civilian populations, and then to boast of it. The prophet Joel also employs the who knows exclamation when Israel is starving because of locusts continually destroying its crops. And Joel uh, chapter 2, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. As Gentiles reading a Jewish Bible, we too quickly identify with the Ninevites and focus on our inclusion in God's gracious actions and compassion. Certainly, the book of Jonah is an opportunity for us to see God's love for outsiders. 
But present-day Christianity is in the role of Jonah, bearer of the word in this analogy, not in the place of the Ninevites. Jonah's protest, which is against forgiving wickedness, is legitimate, and it's a legitimate concern. God's, issues, God's issue is his love for the whole creation, including the rebellious Jonas and the wicked Ninevites. This is an affront to Jonah, whose theology and common sense tells him that the wicked deserve to be punished. His theology of strict justice is a problem and ignores his own frailties that we witnessed in chapter 1. God calls Jonah a second time in the same way he wants the lost to be saved. God has determined that his kingdom will come to the whole earth and that it will come to Nineveh through Jonah. When God opens his eyes to see the great need in Nineveh, Jonah does not want to see it. He doesn't want to see the need. He doesn't want to see the compassion. For us to take a look at this in today's world, God calls, God's call does not allow for us to privatize the invitation. Whether at home or abroad, God reveals his mission to us, to, to his people. God's call cannot be ignored by those who pray that his kingdom will not pass them by. God calls a second time because he wants the lost to be delivered, and he wants us to participate in that. And we see that the ultimate impact when we run with God. Jonah is given a second call. He's given a second chance, just as we are given a second, third, fourth, an unnumberable count, an uncountable number of chances. So we see Jonah running from God, or running, uh, we see Jonah running from God in chapter 1, running to God, chapter 2. We see now the fruits of running with God. Now let's see what happens when we run ahead. So starting in chapter 4, but to Jonah this seems very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said? Lord, when I was still at home, this is what I tried to foresee by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sinning calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a, at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for, for his head to ease the discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he, get, so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah replied, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Jonah 4, again, focuses on the prophet's relationship with God as they dialogue about Jonah's anger over the ways of God. God argues his preference for compassion, even in horrible circumstances. God has compassion for what he has made, 
no matter how ignorant, abusive, evil, vile, or wicked the culture may be. Jonah is angry about God's compassion, and God gives Jonah an object lesson in the form of a vine. He attempts to convince Jonah that the basic response of compassion for living things is more important than strict justice. God's primary, primary argument is creational. If you are not moved to pity, or I'm sorry, if you are moved to pity over the destruction of a vine you did not even create, shouldn't I have, shouldn't I have pity over the people and the animals that I did create? God loves all of his creation for, his gracious, for he is gracious and compassionate. Jonah's out-of-control anger over Nineveh's repentance and God's forgiveness is best understood in reference to Nineveh's historical evil. Jonah's anger is a reflection of God's anger over Nineveh's wickedness. But Jonah's anger also stands in contrast to God's, for he does not believe that their evil should be forgiven. He cannot accept what it says in Micah, you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. These verses that we see in chapter 4 carries the richness of Jonah's relationship with God combined with his contention against God. Jonah knows that God is gracious, he's compassionate, he is slow to anger, uh, and bounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. But Jonah does not understand why this should be shared with the evil Ninevites. He suspected that they would repent and that God would relent, but he doesn't like it and doesn't want to be a part of this forgiveness. More than this, he does not approve of God's intent or action. Jonah has had enough of God's grace. He's had enough of God's compassion, enough of the slowness to anger, the love, the relenting toward the wicked. He wants no part of God's dangerous game. He therefore says... Now, O Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die. Jonah is distraught, and I think we can understand why. He had been the agent of God's forgiveness to the enemy of his own people. Rather than actually seeing their destruction, he's seen their repentance. God then goes on and provides a lesson uh, to demonstrate his compassion. Jonah has made a shelter for himself. Clearly, it was not very good. And so then jo Jonah, or sorry, God sends a plant to provide shade. A worm then is uh, brought to destroy the shade and the scorching east wind to persuade Jonah simply to speak again. It works. And in these three verses, Jonah goes from his previous anger to happiness and then back to anger again. By then, he is finally ready to listen to what God has to say. Jonah's concern for the life and death of the vine is also God's concern, but God's concern extends to the more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Having elicited some concern from Jonah over a living thing, God asked Jonah to understand his extension of concern for an ignorant population. Should I not be concerned about the great city? To paraphrase God's concern, if you feel compassionate about the destruction of a vine you did not create, shouldn't I have that same concern and passion for the people that I did create. To ask Jonah the same question that the great American philosopher, the Black Eyed Peas, asked, where is the love? God's love for the whole creation is placed in front of us as the final question of the book. Should I not be concerned? A city distant from Israel, filled with ignorant people, is placed before us as a primary object of God's concern and love. The answer to God's question is left open to us. It's left open to Jonah. 
But the answer God is seeking is clearly, yes, we should be concerned. God's intention is for all to know his love, insider, outsider, all alike. We are called to affirm his intention and to participate in the communication of his concern and love. Another way of us to think about it is in our own human experience as we try to protect ourselves from exposure to the relationship that we have to God. Some, so many of our actions are to protect and shield ourselves from life, our vain attempts to ward off catastrophe, to ward off trouble. You must remember that only God can save. Jonah seeks safety in the belly of a ship, but finds it only in the belly of a fish. He seeks protection by building a shelter, but God's plant gives him true shade. When the plant is killed, he will finally talk with God about his anger and listen to God's concern for the protection and salvation of all creation. Jesus preached repentance from sin and returning to God during his ministry and struggled with people uh, would not, uh, who would not believe. His cry to Jerusalem does not end in despair, but declares that they will, uh, that they will say, blessed is he. Peter and Paul also carried a message of repentance and faith to the Jews and the Gentiles with mixed success. The significance of Jonah is how it clarifies in real historical context our struggle with the wicked who repent. The wicked who repent sometimes often are not uh, converted for long, but God's mercy to them seems extravagant and ultimately wasted. God works with Jonah and with us to help us understand his way in the world and the extent of his love is for the whole creation. Church, we are called to bring the word. We are called to bring the message of love and forgiveness and the truth that Christ has. So let's go. Let's do that. Let's engage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words that Jonah has. We thank you for his experience. We thank you for ultimately your love, that you are willing to go through so much to save us who are so wicked. Father, I just pray that if there's an opportunity for us to run, that we just turn to you, that we seek you, and we seek all that you have. It's in your name I pray.